0: So we're here today with the sound team of Kong, Skull Island. We're with Al Nelson, who was the supervising sound editor, sound designer, and Steve Slanik, supervising sound editor also, and Pete Horner, sound designer. So thank you guys for sitting down and talking about this fun film. Happy to be here. Yeah. So who was the first point of contact with our director, with Jordan? How did you guys find out about Kong headed towards uh, you guys?
1: Yeah, that was actually uh, Al and I uh, worked on Jordan's uh, first film, kings of summer it was a film that went to sundance and uh then uh was picked up and they needed a little bit more work done on it so al and i jumped onto that and that's where we first met jordan
0: what year was that
1: <laughs> that
0: was a while ago uh, right was, i don't
2: know 2013 13 okay. is what yeah, i would have guessed around yeah there and that's also where we met. So Jordan had an, uh, his his go-to guy, William McGuigan, who helped us on Skull Island. And so that was our first time to collaborate with William and Jordan. And um, the studio Big Beach, we had worked with Big Beach on Safety Not Guaranteed. So they called us up and said, hey, we've got another one. We've got a uh, another new filmmaker who would love to come to Skywalker. And so Pete and I got the band back together, worked with William, and um, remastered the the Theatrical version of Kings of Summer and hit it off with Jordan.
0: Nice. So, when you guys first got word of this film, what were your initial thoughts about going into the world of Kong? I guess Peter Jackson tackled it in 2006, I believe, maybe?
2: 2005.
0: Five? Okay. 2005. Yeah. And. Um, yeah, there was another one, I think, in 1933. Yeah, there was another one. <laughs> yeah, there was one then. Might one have been in the one 70s. Of the 70s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, in the 70s. So, what was it that Jordan was proposing to you guys that was, I mean,. It's always great to work on these big creature monster movies. Those never get tiring, but what, what were you guys excited about?
3: Jordan certainly had a different perspective on yeah. the on the King Kong story. You know, he was he uh, he had this idea of mashing it up between Vietnam and 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 putting it in that period, which was really interesting. I thought that was really um I think all of us were excited about that concept, mm-hmm. you know, and what it would bring to it. So
0: What were some of the references that he was stylistically tone wise what was he wanting to uh what direction was he headed
1: uh well obviously apocalypse now Mm -hmm. um it was a a big point of reference he also referenced thin red line i believe um do you remember if there was another one well
2: what i recall which was a blast that (laughs) But when we brought Jor- we we were always telling Jordan to come up and hang out at the ranch uh, as we tell all of our <laughs> you'll <filmmakers>. never leave <laughs> <laughs> yes dear filmmakers come yeah. visit us um, so uh, early on in the process we knew that Jordan was was coming on board to this film and we wanted to speak to him about it and he wanted to speak to us about it so we said come up hang out and let's watch some movies and I thought this was a uh, first we, we still we knew Jordan but we didn't know him that well. And he said, all right, I'm going to bring a movie for us to watch. So the first time he comes up, he brings this um, uh, his Korean film, yeah. The Good, the Bad, and the Weird. Okay. And we watched it just us in the stag, I think with his executive producer, Eric McLeod, and um, maybe a couple other folks. And it was insane. Uh, and it was a blast. And it sort of uh, showed us the the inner self of jordan Mm -hmm. then uh a little bit later down the road he came back to visit again and again we gave him the option of picking a movie and he picked hearts of darkness oh nice and so i think those were good introductions into where he was going from and at that point we didn't really know a lot about the films and then from there, as we uh, as the soundtrack evolved and as Jordan's aesthetic evolved, he would give us references to video games. He would give us references to films, you know, and filmmakers like Miyazaki. He was a big fan of that. Big fan of um, Indiana Jones. Fan of Star Wars. And so he would use references from those films and other films like that as ideas for where to run with our sound design and our soundscapes you know he would use things like you know more more Degaba, you know when he <laughs> yeah, would reference yeah, ambiences right. and the idea wasn't you know use that the idea yeah. was that this is a whole other world um so yeah. you know and uh, obviously, he took it in a, a more non-traditional direction, which we totally embraced.
0: So, when um, you're saying that you want to do an apocalypse now, which is you know a Vietnam-based film, what was the research that you guys went into to find those sounds? What is the sound of Vietnam in your mind? What, how did that influence Kong?
3: Well, there was a couple of things uh, in my side of the uh, soundtrack. I was more in charge of the dialogue, so we wanted to make sure that we got really authentic language. Even the slang had to be late 60s, early 70s. Uh, so I did a lot of research in trying to, you know, come up with the language that was used in the helicopters. Okay. So there's, you know, the first chunk of the movie takes place um, in the air in these helicopters, and there's a lot of chatter going back and forth between the pilots and what they're seeing and what they're experiencing. <clears throat> and I wanted to make sure that, all that language was authentic to the period, um, but at the same time, of course it's you know there's they're seeing a hundred foot gorilla, so mm-hmm. it has to be um you know it has to reflect that kind of emotion and mm. and everything else. so I reached out to some Vietnam veterans in the Bay Area, and they were gracious enough to come down and and take a look at some scenes and give me lots of ideas about what the appropriate language is. We got a uh, uh, somebody from the Navy, somebody from the Army, um, and then that led to uh, other opportunities to record some other sounds from their helicopters because these were all helicopter pilots.
0: Well, what does that do for you guys when you have those points of research, those points of, of authenticity for you that you're able to achieve a certain level? I, I think that maybe only a, a smaller audience might really have lived it or been around for it, but then obviously... You're trying to recreate a time and a place that a lot of the audience maybe had never experienced.
3: I think it really infuses an authenticity that you wouldn't get if you were just trying to sort of fake it. Okay, You know, having somebody who's really lived through the war and knows what it's like to be shot at and to be rescuing people from the ground and all that kind of stuff, but still keeping your cool. I mean, it's really it's it's something that somebody who hasn't gone through that is it's difficult for them to come up with that. You know what what that sounds like.
0: What what was the breadth of the the amount of vehicles or guns or just all the different effects that you guys had to cover? How, how wide did you have to go versus stuff that was all maybe in the library or not?
3: Well, again, it was a, authenticity and and there was basically two two areas of the military we had to cover. One was the army and the the, the helicopter squadrons, and then the other was the navy, which was. Uh, there was a, you know, there's a ship in the movie, mm-hmm. so I'll let you guys talk about the, the sound
2: design. <laughs> Did you guys go to stuff? sea? Well, well, we didn't go to sea. No. Uh, <laughs> w- one thing that um, we were excited about that um, Steve was instrumental in was in his in his uh, communications with the Vietnam Helicopter Museum and these and these various folks that he was communicating with, he also helped us out in the effects world by orchestrating a, a Huey recording that I'm just gonna spend the next 15 minutes complaining about the fact that I didn't get to go <laughs> <No>. um, <laughs> uh, on this Huey. Mm. Uh, no, actually, um, uh, this was a really, really special opportunity. And Pete, went out there and recorded with an ambisonic mic, Benny Burt, one of our sound effects editors, went out and recorded. Uh, Steve went along as well. So Pete, tell us how awesome it was to fly (laughs) in a Huey helicopter. Uh,
1: Yeah, well, it's actually my very first time going up in a helicopter and it's a Huey, so that's pretty great. (laughs) Uh, Where was it? It was uh, in Concord, California, so about about 45 minutes, an hour maybe from here. And uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it, uh, you have a little bit of nerves going up the first time and mm-hmm. I remember, you know, strapping in and, you know, it starts to kind of shudder a little bit and, um you know, I'm looking, but you're still on the ground and I'm looking down at my levels to get them right. Uh-huh. And then I look up and I'm like, wait, we're 20 feet off the ground. Oh, and I never felt it lift because it just had the same kind of like, you know, it actually ended up being a very smooth ride. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the things that impressed me. And later, uh, you know, they, they took us over, they set us down, they did a bunch of flybys um, with us on the ground and then i went up with them the other guys stayed on the ground to keep getting the the buys and maneuvers and i went on board and you know at this point they're starting to do like you know be a little bit more adventurous in it and again like i'm so focused on levels and get get the mic right <laughs> and all this kind of stuff and one time i i, I look to my left and i'm looking straight at the ground oh, and geez. i realize like you know we're, we're basically on our side here is it open door it's open door oh gosh but but it's so smooth it just you feel like cradled in the seat and you it, it it's not as scary as you would think it would be mm-hmm. but um but oh look at the sound. and we felt we're very so
3: reassured by the guys that were flying and yeah these they were pilots, total pros I mean some of these guys I don't know like 1200 hours of combat time right. I mean these, these mm-hmm. guys were pros mm-hmm. so you know we felt totally safe in in that and 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 they were able to take the, you know the do do some maneuvers that we thought were just fantastic yeah uh, probably right.
0: stuff that you saw on screen and you're like well I don't know if we can do that extreme. <laughs> right. but what well, how, how do you record an object like that? I mean, what are you focusing on? Are you looking for specifics? Are you looking for overall ambience? Like, what what's your approach?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're looking for all of it, um, you know, buys from the ground perspective mm-hmm. on board. It also, just like movement within. So one of the things we did was, uh, you know, in the film, we were flying through a storm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with the helicopter on the ground and it turned off, we had everybody strap into a seat and then just kind of like, you know, Uh, bounce in their seat altogether, you know, and you just get this kind of great shuddering kind of effect. And um, what's really exciting too about doing recording trips is that the guys uh, that you're recording get excited about it and they start offering things, you know, to you. And, you know, I think it's, it's often, they don't even realize a lot of the cool sounds that they're surrounded by every day. But once you kind of tune them into oh, I'm really interested in this or that. You know, I remember the one guy says, well, what about this? And he starts to, again, sitting on the ground, he starts to just kind of shake the mm. the handle of the, I, I don't know what it's called, but the um, the yoke or whatever. Is like the joystick? The, the joystick, yeah. Oh, but, but there's a um, name for it, I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he, he shakes it, and it sh- the whole oh, thing just sounds like it's shuddering. Uh-huh. And it's just, you know, a person who lives around it kind of offering you something and getting excited yeah. about you know their own thing so
0: another aspect is uh there's influence of apocalypse now but you guys also mentioned before we start recording that there's an influence of the conversation how did that come up and what was gained from that the stylist approach for that
1: yeah i mean that's that's one of the cool things about uh jordan is that he's he's so clued into the language of cinema you know through the ages and uh very influenced uh, particularly in this film the movie of the 70s and and coppola and you know walter murch um and so he would very specifically call out, you know, I want this effect when the uh, radio is, you know, sort of detuned and distorting, breaking up. I want it to break up in the way that the voice effect in the conversation breaks up. <laughs> and that's a very, for anyone, you know, in the sound community, we know what that sounds like. Um, but it's one thing to know what it sounds like and different to actually try to like recreate it um i had the the good fortune to work on the 5-1 remaster of the conversation so i i knew walter from that and i've known him over the years so i asked him you know what did you do yeah and he sort of gave me a nice push in the right direction but uh i knew he'd used an arp uh 2600 um analog synthesizer i also knew that he uh at the time was musing on you know harry call had been a um uh a surveillance guy mm-hmm. recording sound and the speculation is well he has the most advanced tools in the early 70s they were just getting a glimmer of what digital mm-hmm. sound you know that was on the horizon but nobody had really heard it and so walter's task on that film was to how, what does digital sound sound like let's let's mm. pretend harry call can do this yeah. and so he reached for his arp synthesizer and did a lot of work with square waves um uh, you know, modulating the the sound, and so uh, that's basically. I found a the it the twenty six hundred has been modeled as a plugin now by Arturia, I think, mm-hmm. and so I reached for that and the the little push in the right direction from Walter and concocted a uh, a thing that came you know pretty close to. Uh, recreating what, so this is they a, did. for a
0: lot of the chatter over over comms and whatnot.
1: Yeah, well, only once they got on the ground. Okay, we were pretty um, normal sounding when you're uh, off the island. You right. know, flying into the storm is all still normal. Even flying ab- <clears throat> above the um, landscape is is all pretty normal. futs. but once they get on the ground, it's sort of the idea that you know there's there's weird electronic. F- Uh, you know, waves modulating. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So all bets are off as to what that sounds like. And uh, if we can make it sound cool, let's make it sound like the conversation cool.
0: Nice. Yeah. Um, And the film opens up with this dogfight between a Japanese fighter and an American, I suppose, is
2: it? Yeah, Mm. it's an American P-51. P-51, right. And a Japanese Zero. And
0: a Zero. So tell me about tracking down this uh, to record a zero how, how does one do so
2: uh, you know we we didn't realize it would be so challenging um, and this is a big theme in the film this Japanese character and uh, the American character Marlowe played by John C Riley and this was uh, a really great opportunity it uh, the film is in atmos and we we basically got to do a radio play of a dogfight between these two airplanes so it had to be you know awesome and authentic sounds so our in-house air and field expert Benny Burt um, <laughs> was eager to to take up the task and so he did all of this research at one point he had discovered a japanese zero up in the northwest somewhere and it was completely disassembled Mm. and that was the only one he could find that guy was happy to fly it for us but it was it was all in parts so he continued to do research and it turned out that there was a um an air show down in southeast california sometime that summer and benny went down and spent the day recording p-51s and the only as I, as, as I understand it, at least in the United States, the only flying Japanese Zero authentic with the Mitsubishi engine flying Zero. Mm. And he went out there with multiple rigs and, and got some amazing stuff. And it really does have a very unique signature sound. Um, and so um, uh, it, was, it was really challenging, though, to put a P-51 and a Japanese Zero in... In the theater, in, even in Atmos, mm. and sort of present that um, th- th- those two unique airplanes. And um, we, we had Tom Myers uh, as our re-recording mixer for effects. Pete Horner did the dialogue. Tom Johnson did the music. So Tom had a blast uh, and really helped bring that opening radio play scene to life by... Um, You know, and we added Stukas and we added you know, the other thing is that they're they're in a battle. So there's gunfire coming from the front and then the airplane strafes across the front of the screen, then another plane, the the P fifty one comes up behind us. So every time the P fifty one is one place, we had to be very specific that the the zero was across the room Mm. and that the gunfire was going above us and and then that you know, one of them was getting hit, and then the other was getting hit. And Jordan was very, very invested in making sure that no, right there at that moment, I want to hear the P fifty one engine explode, and then I want to hear an alarm, and then I want to hear a Stuka dive, mm. and then it goes silent. So it was, it was a really cool thing. And without those sounds that Benny got us, we would, we would not have been able to create that scene as, as special as we feel it is.
0: Something I really like about Jordan's filmmaking style is he loves the use of montage or the, just this very quick pace to move story ahead and to heighten action. And that happens a few times throughout the story. And you guys, it seemed like, had a great opportunity to really heighten these moments. For you, were these always storyboarded out that you guys were going to be well aware of, like, these coming together moments that happened throughout the film?
2: His style is pretty clear in the first cuts we saw. And we did notice that it was... Um, Unique from what we were used to with with other filmmakers, which made us exciting. Excited. Um, one of the other things we did early on was um, William McQuiggan, who was Jordan's um, sound guy um, in in his early filmmaking and, and continues to work with him and worked with us, um, was brought on to work in the picture department, and so a lot of Jordan's style, William was able to collaborate with Jordan. And so sort of the process, we would feed William these sounds and William would cut them for Jordan. So early on, we started to see how Jordan was, was using montage visually and sonically. And that was a good template and a good defining process for us. And then we carried it all the way through. And I think in the beginning we were like, whoa, this is weird. And then, as we started to realize where he was going, it got fun. And I think one of the fun moments was um, some of the helicopter crashes, mm. where he would sort of yank the rug from out you, out from under you, and you'd have this sort of flop, flop, scream, uh, radio chatter, bobblehead, crash, thud, <laughs> smash. Yeah. And it was, it, as you said, it was all about propelling the story and r- disengaging and reengaging and. Not it being even but being disjunct and, and cacophonous in, in an exciting way. And I think his shooting style, his story style and his his sound style exemplify that. And I think just the fact that, that he has a style
3: makes it fun. Yeah. Yeah. Gives I thought, you, I thought yeah. another great example of that of his style was this what we call the slow chop, which he used as a trans transition device. But it was based on the sound of a helicopter. The flop, flop of a helicopter, I'm assuming. Right. Yeah. Allard. Well, Pete actually made uh, made some new slow chops because
2: Jordan brought us two or three and we kept whining to him I'm like, oh, not another slow chop. Uh, he even he jokes with us and he says, uh, you're stuck with me now in my slow chops. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it again, it, it's a defining style. And, you know, not many filmmakers have their sort of. Back pocket sounds that they like to use that define them. They're just like, oh you kids do your thing. But right. he's, a, you know, he's invested from the ground up. So uh, as we started to see his um, his style and what he was looking for, uh, Pete and I both, but Pete in particular, um, uh, ran with it. And uh, tell us about your washing machine, Pete. <laughs> tell us about your washing machine, <laughs> my,
1: Pete. My, my, yeah, <laughs> my uh, uh, so yeah, one of the early tasks was uh, well, let's just create some, you know, helicopter effects, some stylized things. And, you know, one of them was sort of the classic apocalypse now, thwop, thwop, thwop. And I I did that almost as an exercise just to get my head in the space and threw it in the library and didn't even think that it was necessarily going to go anywhere, but it it ended up someone cut it into a a scene. And that was, (laughs) that was a moment. Um, But the slow chop um, was also similar. It was just sort of me riffing on what does a, a helicopter sound like and reaching for other things, of course. And one of them was my brother's um washing machine which uh, was sort of out of balance and made this really nice metallic <Piep tingling> <aired Avengers> <aterial> <troopers> like it was about to fall apart and you know uh, built that into something that sounded like it could be a helicopter oh and then William took that and built this thing that we affectionately called the slow chop and uh, you know sort of took that and ramped it up into a hard cutoff and uh, it wasn't until later that I was like that sounds familiar I think and I, <laughs> I w- w- listened compared with the th- sound that I made and realized yeah that's my my brother's washing machine living on in immortality
0: you can never sell it <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah
2: but I think that's a good example that I'm I'm excited about with with our crew is that you know w- there was definitely a lot of sort of, you know, handing off and wearing of multiple hats and sharing of ideas. And it it did, it was encouraged by Jordan where he would just sort of give us little tidbits of ideas to run with. And then we would all kind of play with it, you know, from the conversation material to the way the helicopter sounded to... Some of these sort of stylized transitions, and everybody played an important part in in shaping this track. It wasn't just okay, you know, you do all the helicopters and I'll do all the creatures. <laughs> and um, I was, I was, I think that the the track yeah, flourishes because of that. That's yeah,
1: there's awesome. a, there's another um, a probably good example of Jordan, um, you know, bringing us. On board with his style, um, I remember th- this is in the final mix, and you know everybody's sort of built this big scene where uh, we first encounter Kong, and um, you know music's doing its thing, effects is doing its thing, and you know Jordan stops Al in the in the hallway and says, you know I have this idea like from that slow motion machine gun that that could sort of become a rhythm and it just keeps going and it goes into the music and it it all leads up to when Kong, you know, smashes the helicopter and, you know, Al comes in and tells us and there's sort of a really? Like, <laughs> how does he want us? Like, how it's not, work? it's not designed to do that. Yeah, yeah. And, but, uh, you know, people, we, we got on board and, you know, Al went in his room and I think, uh, our, uh, music editor, um, Jack Dolman, uh, cut together sort of a rhythmic track and Al cut together the sound effects. Anything that could be rhythmic became rhythmic in yeah. a specific way. And, uh, Uh, it just became this actually really cool moment in the film where it just locks into a certain rhythm. And, you know, I think it's just a a good example of it's easy when you're sort of in the trenches to be like, oh, I don't know, like, this is a crazy idea. Why are we doing this? But when you kind of, you know, give yourself to it and, you know, great things can happen.
0: So the film is is centered around the character of Kong, and yet it seems that, you know, well, well, I guess really at what point... Did the conversation come up of what should Kong sound like? Yeah. How should we represent him? Was that the first priority? Was when did that conversation come up? Um,
2: yeah, Kong was. Uh, um, and actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back real quick and and give uh, a shout out to Jack Dolman as well, who was our music editor, and he was really, you know, he was run through the ringer on this one um, because <laughs> again of Jordan's style, and. Um, um, he was really, really um, eager to and and cooperative in working with us on these things. So, we, you know, with this with this crazy moment where Kong is being shot at and there's helicopters everywhere, uh, we had a really great time kind of concocting this sort of rhythmic event that I never imagined could have come together. And it's actually one of our favorite moments in that in the film, and it really kind of sets the pace. So, kudos to Jack. Uh, so yeah, so um, <clears throat> Kong. Um, I I know that when Jordan, when it was first confirmed that Jordan was in fact directing this and that I was going to be involved um, and that we were going to be involved, he sent some cryptic, you know, email <laughs> to me and, you know, mentioned uh, he can't wait to hear uh, Kong and... The I was really excited to hear the dweller. I was like, I have no idea what it You know, I'm thinking back on the Kong movie. I, I don't even know what a dweller is. The yeah. dweller turns out to be the skull crawlers. But for Kong, he he definitely wanted something, um, a little more unique. But really, it was more about his personality than it was about what he what the the minutia of his sound was. It was that he is the protector of the island. He is a god on that island. And so it wasn't as much a an angry roar as it as it was a bellow and a characteristic about his sort of you know his godliness on this island. And um, so a lot of the early experimenting that I did was, screamier and it sounded more creature like. And we had many opportunities to do the creature stuff, but for Kong it needed to have this sort of tone and he referenced um, he re- referenced like Tibetan horns, you know, this sort of majestic thing. And uh, you know obviously as as Kong is being attacked, he he has many other personality traits and and many folks were involved in figuring out what Kong sounds like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and all of these little details of him being empathetic and him being in pain and him being angry. Um, but for starters, it was this this bellow. Uh, but the other the other approach I wanted to take was uh, you know, sometimes in in my approach to sound, I like to start with sort of limitations and rules and just kind of rather than starting with the whole kitchen sink, you end up with kind of a mishmash and I wanted to start with things that I thought would be a good, Bones, and so I went back to the original Kong the thirty-three. Um, the great thing about being here at Skywalker is you can have wonderful conversations with all of our mentors. <laughs> and I remember picking up a conversation with Ben Burt and you know he just has such a cinematic history of sound in you know in that brain of his. And he was talking all about uh, Murray Spivak and and the original Kong sounds and how he was digging through the back of, a, of UCLA one day and, you know, some pile of old, old materials. And he found the original RKO um, texts of all the original sounds. And it inspired me to start with what, what Spivak did, which was he went to the LA zoo and he recorded a, t- a lion, just a lion roar. And this is the first time a creature ever existed in cinema history. So I thought, well, I should at least start with that. That's You can't go wrong there. And not that, uh, you know, a male African lion hasn't been used in,
0: you know, many films. I think you guys are doing that for Jurassic World, right?
2: Yeah, male African lion <laughs> is the go-to, no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had some great recordings of, of lion bellows, and they have this very, you know, king of the jungle sound to them. Mm-hmm. And then from there, sought that bellow, that Tibetan horn bellow, which is a mammal. I'm going to kind of mm-hmm. keep it under my uh, under my belt what it is because I think it, it just diminishes from Kong's sure. majesty um, but uh, that was the approach was this sort of this traditional approach of going back to the original Kong and then adding this hundred foot godly element mm-hmm. and then adding all of the details from there and it, there was a lot of back and forth. We would play it for Jordan. We would play it for the studio. Everybody was very invested in mm-hmm. how Kong would sound. Mm. and, um, uh, it was fun. Uh,
0: how did you represent him f- with the Foley team with footsteps and just the overall movement, the weight, the mass of this creature? How did, how, what was the discussion? What was the approach for that?
2: Well, we were very fortunate to have John Rush, Shelly Roden, and Scott Curtis on, uh, on our team. So, you know, John Rush, um, Came up here to skywalker a couple years ago and we've been very fortunate to have he and his team here um and so the great thing about rush steve orlando uh was our foley supervisor chris manning also helped cut foley so we um we all got uh down and dirty with um with foley early on and sort of approached it from not only a foley perspective but also from a sound effects perspective and steve and i would play through the reels and identify things that for example you know kong's hand you know he has this massive hand (laughs) and he you know would assume that sound effects would do something for that i said oh no foley john Mm -hmm. john and shelley are going to do an amazing job on that and then when he picks up the helicopter i said oh yeah foley should do that (laughs) and they killed it they just did all this amazing stuff and um I don't think Foley was so involved in the footsteps, but it was definitely involved in a lot of Kong's movement and his his sort of presence. And these are things that you can record a lot of sound effects. You can get rugs and do things, but they just have um, they have a performance quality to them, and and the way that they act against the screen, which brings it to life. So, uh, from from Kong and, you know, the the Skullcrawler and other creatures, they were very directly involved in how, they're, how they moved and in a lot of the big crashing and booming and mm. all the stuff that you would normally um, take out of the Foley tracks, you know, for fear of not enough time or just expecting that effects would cover it. And I think it adds a layer of presence and performance that we could never have accomplished.
0: Yeah, it's it's incredible to... The moments that you do have with him, it, it seems to, all the birds disappear, it gets really quiet <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. and you just hear this weight and mass and you're just anticipating what he's gonna do next. And that was, um, my next question is, what? how did you want to treat ambiences? Because it's an island, mm. it's lush, there's tons of crazy life, but it's not traditional types of birds and, and bees and the stuff we're used to. So what was the decision about
1: for uh, the ambiences? Yeah, well, that's another area where Jordan, I think, really, you know, put his stamp on it because, you know, the the vistas are, first of all, uh, amazing yeah. and inspiring. And he went all, all over the world to find, you know, real locations to shoot on. So that's a point of inspiration. But, you know, some of the um, it takes a place a lot in the jungle. Uh, in some cases, they're uh Shooting in the same place that they shot Jurassic park mm-hmm. um for instance, but he very specifically didn't want even though we have this amazing collection of you mm-hmm. know recordings that were made for Jurassic Park, he didn't want it to sound like that he wanted the his jungle to be you know unique and especially to really get a sense of like you know what is out there like right that what is that so so that it it wouldn't be a normal kind of jungle ambience it would be you know, a a weird jungle ambience, you know? This is a place where we can have giant ants, you know, that sound like birds. And so if we have ants that sound like birds, well, the birds can be made from anything. So, (laughs) you know, that was a license for, you know, Al and I to really try to find unique sounds that could, you know, float off in the distance and just come up occasionally and be like, what, what is, what, this is a strange place.
3: One of my favorite moments in the movie is the yeah. boneyard and the sound of the ambience of the boneyard and how Jordan was willing to really take it to a place where, you know, not a lot of filmmakers might be comfortable. In fact, at one point it goes completely silent, what he called digital silence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yep. it was just mm-hmm. zeros. Right. Um, and that's, that's a pretty brave thing to do, you know, in an action film. Um, and he really used it effectively, and, and you guys, and you had this, there was like this ash falling mm-hmm. uh, in different pa- places of the boneyard, and he wanted a, a sense of that and the sound of that. That was really yeah, the, effective, I and,
2: think. And when you expose um, that emptiness and then you just have their footsteps and, <laughs> and or yeah. their breathing, exactly, amazing. Um, it actually emphasizes that that silence and that um, that tension that mm-hmm. you, you felt in there, yeah. yeah. Um, and
0: were those things that Jordan had planned ahead that it was going to drop, or something that you figured out on the stage? Almost
2: everything um, that that exists in this track is Jordan was invested in, and in right. some way had communicated. Whether it was specifically, for example, right here, I want to go to digital silence. He would say that's that Mm. but uh, back to what Pete was talking about with the ambiences there wasn't any you know i want you to take you know zebras and you know pitch them down and put them in out there he just said i don't want to hear what you would normally hear in a tropical jungle i want to hear and experience another world and and again, his references to to Miyazaki films and to Star Wars and, and things such as that um, gave us a starting point. The other thing that um, was so much fun to run with was that Jordan definitely um, utilized the entire theater, the whole room. He yeah. wanted to uh, hear stuff behind him. He wanted to hear stuff above him. He wanted this to be immersive and... Um, and unique, so you know he, he he couldn't push us far enough, which is fun. <laughs> yeah.
0: Did Did you guys start as a native Atmos mix? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how, how did you find? I think I heard a f- maybe five one seven one when I saw it, but how how was the translation were all those overheads and all the panning? Did that does that do you find it translates really well for a film like this?
2: It was challenging. I'll let Pete talk a little more as yeah. as a re recording mixer, but I I do want to give uh, Tom Myers. Um, huge credit for um you know uh, definitely the the effects wa- was a big job to mm-hmm. do in atmos and you know sometimes you do atmos and you have a few objects but this thing had lots of objects it had lots of overheads it had lots of movement the spider scene mm-hmm. is is a huge object-oriented moment the um the opening sequence with the dogfight, of course, big objects, the uh, attack in the boneyard where you have the skull crawler coming down and attacking from above. And uh, I do recall when we are mastering that, you know, when you have a lot of that stuff behind you and above you and and beside you and you fold it down into 7-1 and 5-1, it got tricky. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had to review a lot of stuff, and, of course, it's always fast and furious at the end. And, you know, there were a lot of things that revealed themselves where it just... Uh, you know here's a note to all you filmmakers we need to have time to print master this stuff <laughs> yeah. uh, and Pete yeah what what are your thoughts as a re-recording mixer
1: yeah well I uh, I was on the dialogue side and Foley so I didn't end up using the objects the way that the other guys did but I do know that um, both of the Toms Tom Myers and Tom Johnson um, you know made very good use of it and mm-hmm. um, the music I know was prepped Um you know, so that there were overhead channels, um, proscenium channels, uh, you know, pre-designed to fill the Atmos space, and then of course, you know, Tom Johnson uh, needed to figure out how to crash that down, and uh, <laughs> you know, um, I think it, you know, definitely took a little bit of work, but I think it came out great. That's
0: awesome, and I, I love the um, the very end, kind of the added on the the teaser for the uh, follow-up, yeah. is we have we have this wonderful moment of Godzilla yeah shows up for <laughs> a sequel I imagine which is not too far behind, so we just saw uh Godzilla, and that was i guess um from Ericdal and ether Vendorion had designed that was that the same one that yes yeah. mm-hmm.
2: that's exactly so um this was a late break late breaking news they <laughs> i think for a while they were you know um legendary is very excited about this monster verse that they are mm-hmm. um creating that they began with Godzilla and you know they're moving towards um the next Godzilla and then Godzilla versus Kong and you know all of the other monsters that will um exist. And so there were a variety of iterations where they were hinting at Godzilla mm-hmm. in the film. But as Jordan has said in other interviews, he didn't he wanted this to be a movie about Kong and didn't want to get um didn't want us to get too redirected with all of these side stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they ended up deciding was that they would introduce it at the very end and then conclude the whole movie with <laughs> that iconic roar. and uh, And so when we heard about that, we reached out to Eric, who was totally happy to share the, you know that iconic roar in you know in its full glory. And we played it loud and proud right yeah. across <laughs> the cut. Um, I um, uh, I knew uh, Ethan back in the day. We didn't really encounter Ethan yeah. on this project, but I used to work uh, for Ethan as an assistant editor. So um, it's cool to uh, <laughs> to have him in uh, as part of this extended monsterverse.
0: It's it's an interesting thing because as we go back and revisit these franchises, you set a precedent of what these worlds should sound like now. No one's gonna say, "Oh, this doesn't sound like." kong from the 30s or from 2005 you know it's it's people are only going to reference what we have now which obviously you guys have experienced with the marvel world and star wars and so much of these things that people only know of because of how or they know they know how they sound and so there's a holding i think that to me is really interesting to see that this character is now going to be around maybe for maybe hopefully a few more films
2: Yeah. Well, and it's also fun that it it should keep changing and it does keep changing and it's fun to see what um, what's next. And, you know, if there's, you know, maybe maybe someone else will do another Kong and it'll be cool to see (laughs) what that Kong sounds like or, you know, another dinosaur movie or 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 another Marvel movie. And um, that I, you know, I like the fact that, you know, sound and and the creatives are all dynamic and, and constantly trying new things. Uh, nobody else is going to do a washing machine helicopter like Pete does, <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> and this kind of stuff is, is what brings us in every day. So it's, it's cool.
0: Thank you guys. This is a lot of fun. Thanks again, Al Nelson, Pete Horner, Steve Slanik. Thank you guys. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks Michael. Michael. Thanks again for tuning in and listening to my chat with the sound team of Kongs, Skull Island. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com.